Amen. So I don't know if you uh, are like me. I, I avoid the dentist office uh, if, if I can possibly. I, I go to the dentist about once every 10 years, whether I need it or not. Uh, do as a, you know, don't do that. Don't, don't be like me. But, but I, I, I don't like the, um, this, the, whole, the whole, any of it. I don't like going to the dentist. And so, um, and so I tend to stay away. I always think of that Steve Martin character who always enjoyed causing things pain and his mom told him to be a dentist, you know. And so... Um, but when you go to the dentist, I don't know if you go to the dentist like, like I've been, but, but sometimes they have pictures on the wall like this one. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, oh, and, uh, and, and what's, what's the point of this picture? Because you may be rocking along saying, I mean, I'll drink Dr. Pepper right before I go to bed. No big deal. I don't have to brush my teeth. No big deal. And then you see like that, and you're like, that's the reality of what gum disease looks like. And I always leave thinking, I, I need to floss. You know, I really need a floss. And so, and so it kind of snaps me out of, um, we can move on from there. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe you've come across back in, I think this was in the 90s, maybe you came across this anti-smoking campaign, uh, this uh, cowboy uh, singing through his, uh, his tracheostomy, you don't always die from tobacco. And you may be just like, you may just be going along about your business, smoking your Marlboros, and then you, you, you hear and see him singing, you don't always die from tobacco, so you don't always die from tobacco sometimes. Travis, I, this is a serious topic, man. Why are you laughing? Uh, sometimes they just, Travis knows the whole song. Sometimes they just snip at your tongue and you think, wow, like that's really serious. That's a very graphic image, unexpected image that kind of jolts us into reality. The last one, uh, you know, uh, 80s kids and, 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 and others will recognize this one. There's an egg. This is your brain, this frying pan. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And so, um, uh, and so that we know that our brain isn't literally an egg, and and, and, or, or, and, and drugs aren't literally a frying pan. But the, but symbolic language is being used to communicate this truth to us that drugs will scramble and fry and mess up our brains. And so you may just be rocking along and like doing, doing your thing, doing drugs, and then you say, wow, I don't want my brain to be scrambled. And that's the goal of that, uh, of that image is to kind of shake us, to rattle us, and to help us to see reality. So, so sometimes we need to be shocked in order to see reality for what it is. Um, it's really easy for us to get lulled into this false kind of upside-down sense of of what is real and what is not. And I believe, coming from Daniel 7 today, that a biblical vision of God gives us a clear vision of what is real. If we want to be tapped into what's reality, what is life really about, what's real and true and good and lasting, we're not going to have that apart from a biblical vision of God. Because a biblical vision of God gives us a clear vision of what is real. So a lot of times we get this upside down and we think, I man, what's the Bible have to do with real life, the real world? As if, you know, our, 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 our post-toasties and our drive to work and all those things are, are the real thing. And, and, and what we're going to encounter here in Daniel 7 is there's this glorious vision of one uh, who is called the Ancient of Days and one like a son of man who, who receives authority and dominion and an eternal kingdom from him. And what Daniel is, is going to communicate to us, what God's communicating to Daniel, is there is something real. 
and that real something, that real something is a person, and is, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and if we don't have a biblical vision of him, and if our lives aren't revolving around him, we're not going to have a clear vision of what's real, of what's true, of what's good, okay? So Daniel 7, just a little backdrop. This is a more difficult passage than the passages we've been in Daniel, but this passage is all about God. And it centers really at the center, the heart, the guts of this passage is this revelation, this vision of who God is. And so if we'll stick with it, we'll find a lot of application to us, but we're going to have to, have, going to, have to do some work together to get there, okay? Um, this is all about God, and when, we, and when we let it be all about God, we're going to find that there actually ends up being a lot for us to glean, okay? And so Daniel 7 uh, is, is, a lot of people consider it to be the climax of the book. This is a high point of, of the book of Daniel uh, because there's this powerful vision that he's going to receive. It has a lot in common with the, passage, the chapters that come before it and the chapters that come after it. And so it has in common with the chapters that come next because Daniel 7 and following are all visions that Daniel himself receives. Where earlier in the book, there were kind of adventures of Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there were a couple times Daniel had to decode or unveil a vision someone else had. Well, now from chapter 7 and on, Daniel's having the visions, and he's got to go like to an angelic messenger for help encoding and understanding his own visions and his own dreams. But chapter 7 also has a lot in common with the previous chapters because chapters 2 through 7 are in the Aramaic language. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, 8 and following are in Hebrew, but chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic. And so they're kind of tied together as a unit. And chapter 2 and 7 parallel one another. You might remember a few weeks ago, this is, I know this is uh, a lot to ask, but maybe a few weeks ago, you remember we, we, we talked about Daniel 2, or maybe you've read it before, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of a statue, this beautiful, glorious statue with a head of gold and chest of silver and thighs of, of bronze and then feet, uh, legs of iron and, and, and feet of, of iron mixed with clay. And that was these four successive kingdoms that eventually get crushed by the stone, which is the kingdom of God and, and, and its king, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, well, well, chapter 7 is going to parallel chapter 2, but instead of being the statue, we're going to see these four beasts, these four monsters that come up out of the sea that also represent these same four kingdoms. All right, and then chapters 3 and 6 parallel each other. Chapter 3 is, is about the, the, the three Hebrew friends getting delivered from the, the fiery furnace. Chapter 6 is Daniel getting delivered from the lion's den. And then chapters 4 and 5 right there in the middle are both about proud rulers being humbled and God humbling the proud but giving grace to the humble. Okay, so there's this really, in chapters 2 through 7, this really cool parallels all the way through. And, and, and now that we've got to come to chapter 7, it's also unique in that it uses what's called apocalyptic language. And, and, and really, chapter 7 on are fallen into this genre of writing called apocalyptic. And so maybe you hear apocalypse, you think about apocalypse now, the movie, or you think about like the end of the world. And apocalyptic language is, is, is language, or the apocalyptic genre of writing is, 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 it uses a symbolic shocking language to communicate truth to us. The book of Revelation is written in apocalyptic language. And so uh, we still use apocalyptic language today. We still use uh, symbolism all the time. So back to your brain being an egg and a frying pan being, being drugs, your brain on drugs, that's symbolic, powerful language. We use apocalyptic language. Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, saying, uh, Alan Jackson saying, where were you when the world stopped turning? that September day. So imagine 500 years from now, people saying, wow, on September 11th, the world stopped turning. How bizarre is that? No, well, we know that he's using earth-shattering language to communicate that something earth-shattering happened. 
And so we kind of need to keep that in mind when we, when we read apocalyptic language like this. Um, the point is, is the symbolic, powerful language is being used to drive home reality to us. And what we're going to find in Daniel 7 is at the center of all reality is one seated on a throne who's not waiting to rule one day, but he rules right now. All right? So we good? Awesome. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, so stop there. We, we, we may remember that at Daniel 6, Belshazzar, by the time we've got, we, we finished Daniel 6, Belshazzar was dead and King Darius has, has taken over. The Persians have, have taken over the kingdom. Well, this is a little bit further back in time. It's back when Belshazzar was still king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts, four great monsters came up out of the sea, different from one another. So let's pause there. So here's Daniel. He's been in exile years and years and years, and God speaks to him. And that's the first thing I would like for us to hear today, is that our God is a God who speaks. He speaks through people that, 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 that love him, that are in your life. He speaks through the still, small voice of his spirit. And the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. God speaks to Daniel because God loves Daniel. God speaks to Daniel because he loves Daniel. And God loves you so much that God's given you his word. Because he wants to commune with you. He wants to communicate with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so he speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through the Spirit. He speaks to us through Christian friends. He speaks to us in random ways, and he speaks to us through his word. And so often we approach God's word as if it's a chore we're doing or if like we're doing God a favor by going to his word. But God loves us, and he's given us this word because he wants to communicate. Because God loves you, he speaks to you. He's a God who speaks. So John chapter, the Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 31, uh, Jesus says, um, he says, if, if you abide, if you live in, you make your home in my word, you are truly my disciples. And he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the scripture that points us to Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And so if we want to be free, there's no recipe for freedom that doesn't involve soaking in, living in, dwelling in, abiding in God's word. And that word points us to Jesus, and he sets us free. And so God speaks. He spoke back, to, back there to Daniel, and he speaks to us today. And a big way that he speaks is through his word. So because he loves us, he speaks to us. Not only that, but God's word is reliable. We're still, we're still with each other? We're still alive? God's word's reliable. So God's going to give to Daniel here in chapter 7, he's going to give him this unfolding vision, this predictive prophecy of about 700 years, six or 700 years of human empires that are going to roll out. And, and, that, and history played out exactly like God said that it would. And so if God can be relied on to prophesy human kingdoms, if God can be relied on, if his word can be relied on to prophesy things like the coming of Christ, then he can be relied on to tell us how to live our lives. His word's reliable. His word's reliable when I don't understand it. His word's reliable when I don't like it. When God's word tells me something that I don't like, it's, it's reliable, and so I have a choice. Am I going to be the Lord of my life and choose what I listen to, or is God's word going to uh, point me to the Lord of my life, Jesus Christ? All right? 
And so God speaks because he loves us and God's word is reliable. Let's, 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 let's jump back in, okay? Verse 3, the four great beasts then came up out of the sea, different for one another. So here's a, an old, like from the 1600s, it's an engraving. Uh, I don't know how well you can see it, but maybe you see Daniel there on his bed and then these four monsters crawling up out of the sea beside him. And, uh, and these are the monsters that are, are about to be described here. But the sea, for a Jewish person like Daniel, represented chaos. It represented, like, um, disorder. And, and, and there's a hint here of Genesis chapter 1, where God's Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And out of this watery, chaotic abyss, God brought order, and he created, and he made all things. Well, here in Daniel 7, God's Spirit, God's wind, God's breath, is hovering over the chaos of these waters. And out of this rumbling come these beastly empires. And, and so part of what Daniel's telling us is that there's no human empire that rises up that God doesn't allow to rise up. But just because God sovereignly allows something to happen doesn't mean that God endorses what the beast does. But, but what, what he's getting at is that God's on his throne regardless of who might be sitting on any kind of human throne, okay? These four great beasts, these monsters come out. Verse four, the, four, the, the, the first was like a lion had eagle's wings, and then the wings were taken off, and then it was stood up like a man. And most likely, this is referring to the first. This is, again, this parallels Daniel 2. And so this lion probably parallels that, that head of gold from the statue in Daniel chapter 2. This probably refers to Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the, the wings being plucked off are like when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and being stood up upright like a man or when he, he, was, he was elevated again after he humbled himself before God, okay? And then next, there's another great beast. There's uh, a bear. Um, it was raised up, verse 5, it was raised up on one side, had r- three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Uh, this, it, this bear with three ribs in its mouth, no, we're not talking about um, you at Outback Steakhouse when you're eating the, the, the ribs. This, this is a picture here of a kingdom, of a human empire. We're going to be told that these are kings or kingdoms that are being represented here by these animals. This is this beastly empire that even though it's got three ribs sticking out of its, its mouth, it still can't be satisfied. It's still hungry to conquer and conquer and conquer more. And what we're going to find is each of these kingdoms that's represented, they get more and more bloodthirsty. They get more and more oppressive as time goes on. All right. Verse six, after this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Like you may be thinking, man, what, what did Daniel eat before he went to sleep this night? Like he, this is a crazy dream. And he has this vision of, of a leopard with four heads that's flying and, and, and most associate it with the third part of, of the statue of, 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 of Daniel 2, the, 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 the bronze. Um, and this would represent the, the Greek kingdom, all right? And then there's uh, verse 7, I saw in the night a, a, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns. So, so this beast is so weird-looking and so terrible-looking that Daniel really can't even uh, compare it to like a human animal. An- he can't really compare it to an animal that he's ever seen. It's just terrible, and it's unlike any kingdom that's come before it, and it, and it, and it uh, stomps out uh, wickedly, um, oppressively, everything in its path. One uh, artist more recently has depicted this fourth beast by this picture. You can see this gigantic 
uh, crazy-looking monster with ten, ten horns that's coming, and it's, you can just tell that's not a guy you want to meet in a dark alley, right? That's a beast. That's a monster, okay? And then Daniel goes on to describe something really strange. He says there's these ten horns in its head, but then another horn comes, and the, that horn takes away three horns that were there already, and the horn that comes up has a mouth and eyes, and it speaks arrogantly and haughtily and blasphemously, and it opposes God, and it opposes God's people. And we're thinking, what? The beast was weird enough, but now there's a horn on its head and even the horn is talking like what is going on what are we supposed to do with this one thing is is that as we recognize that um, what Daniel's doing or what God's doing for Daniel and giving him this shocking vision is God is showing Daniel and God is showing us what reality really is and so in Daniel 2 Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of, of human empires, and it was a vision that he could, could kind of process. And it was a beautiful vision of a beautiful statue. And from humans' perspective, our empires that we build are beautiful. But the vision that Daniel gets is God's perspective, and our empires are brutal and monstrous and twisted in the eyes of God. Um, Human empires are bent towards oppression and towards injustice and towards violence. We're good at talking about like how sin infects us individually, but what Daniel 7 and what other parts of Scripture communicate to us is that sin infects structures and empires and communities and systems. And there's such a thing as structural evil where sin gets into um, even a kingdom and, and infects the whole thing. We tend to view like a really whitewashed view of human empires, but God kind of peels back the curtain and says, this is what empire, this is what human kingdoms apart from Christ look like. They're ugly, they're brutal, they're monstrous, they're oppressive. Um, and so, and so if, if, who is that fourth beast? Well, it probably corresponds to the fourth part of the statue from Daniel 2, which would be the Roman Empire, which was unlike any kingdom that had been before it, and they plowed everybody under their feet, and, 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 and it was brutal. And, um, and, 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 and we'll pick up back on that here in just a moment. Verse 9. While, while Daniel is just kind of like freaked out by these monsters that he's watching in his vision coming out of the sea, he sees something else. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Try to stay with this. He sees these beasts that we're going to find out later represent human kingdoms, and he says, then I saw thrones. At the same time, all these human kingdoms are coming and going and rising and falling and getting worse and worse and worse, I saw thrones placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now we don't have to be Bible scholars to figure out who's the Ancient of Days. He's talking about God himself. And, and isn't it interesting that God is referred to as the Ancient One, the Ancient of Days. He takes his seat, his clothing white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. This isn't saying God is like a, a gentle old grandpa in the sky. This is saying that God is pure and he's holy and he's set apart. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. How about that? God's got a throne in Daniel's vision that has wheels on it. It's like a chariot because God's a warrior God. And this throne has wheels. That's significant because Daniel is far away from home. He's far away from from his kingdom, and God's communicating to him, there's nowhere you can go, Daniel, that I'm not there. There's nowhere that you can go. There's no hole or Babylon or pit that you can end up in that I'm not there as well, okay? God, God can go anywhere, no matter how deep we think we're sunk, all right? And so, 
So this is a pretty vivid picture of God. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So surrounded by all these angels, the court sat in judgment. The books were opened. So basically what's being communicated here is, is Daniel sees this vision of God. It's a vision so vivid and so beautiful and God's so holy and pure and true and good that Daniel really can't even put it into words. And he sees that court is in session and God is going to decide who's in the right and who's in the wrong? And guess who God says is wrong? He finds against the beast. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And I looked, the beast was killed, its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so, look, there's, there's people that spend their whole lives studying this passage, so we're going to really hit the high points here. We're going to try to hit what is the main point here. And what's, what, just, what just happened? Daniel sees this vision of the king of kings, the ancient of days, and with a word, fire goes out from his throne, and he destroys in judgment, in his wrath, which is good. He destroys this beast that seemed like it was unstoppable. It seemed like this beast was just going to oppress and harm people from now on, and God um, destroys it, and it's killed. So we need to think about when is this happening? Is this, is this something that happened already? Has God defeated the beast already? Or is the defeat of the beast something that we're waiting to happen in the future? That's a really important question, all right? So then he sees something else, and this is going to remind us kind of of that passage of Revelation. I hope it reminds us of that passage we read just a little while ago. And I had to apologize to the first service. I want to uh, not really apologize, but I know a lot of times our our messages are a lot more instantly practical. But, but this is a vision all about God. And so let's stay with it and see what ends up being practical to you. I think this is going to be extremely practical. All right. So he sees this additional vision, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now that phrase son of man, it means human being. I saw one like a human. Psalm 8 says, what is man or the son of man? That, that parallels one another. Son of man just means human. But this human, this son of man is different. He's unique. There's something divine about him. So we're already thinking, who do we know that's human and divine, right? And so he's, he, he comes to the Ancient of Days and was presented before the Ancient of Days. So it's court still in session, okay? And so where the beast was found to be guilty and was destroyed and defeated, here's the son of man who's brought before the Ancient of Days and he's found uh, to be innocent and he's vindicated. To him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Hang on to that. Part of what, the, uh, of what uh, is, is due to the Son of Man here is to be served by all nations, languages, and peoples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So that's instantly we see this is different than the beast. The beasts come and go and get destroyed. But here's the Son of Man whose kingdom is everlasting forever, will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Okay? And so um, we've seen... Daniel's loyalty all the way through, through the first six chapters. We've seen his loyalty to God, his true king, over any kingdom he's lived under. And now we see this son of man figure whose, whose exaltation to, to God's presence, his ascension to God's presence, is somehow 
Remember, this is visionary material, so Daniel's seeing through a glass darkly, but this figure, the Son of Man figure's ascension and enthronement is somehow connected to the defeat of this terrible beast. All right? Um, So we may not feel like we have a lot of clarity yet, but I want to remind us that a biblical vision of God is the only way we're going to understand what reality is. And whatever else may be going on here, what Daniel has seen is this picture of a God who's holy, who's mighty, who rules right now. And a vision of the Son of Man who ascends to his his right hand. All right? And so, again, these beasts that we've seen are these human kingdoms bent on oppression and and, 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 and destruction. And then, but then in the midst of all those, there's this throne where one sits who is good and holy and true, who isn't waiting to rule one day in the future, but he rules right now. And so question, who is the son of man? Who is the son of man figure that ascends to, the, to, to, to be seated alongside um, the ancient of days? Um, it helps if we remember Daniel 6 that came right before this. And this is, I think, really fascinating. What happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6? He was faithful to God, and because he was faithful to God, he got thrown into a pit, right? Where he was surrounded by what? It's not a trick question. He was surrounded by lions, also beasts, right? We would call them beasts. He was surrounded by these beastly lions. And Instead of being eaten by the lions, God gives him this dominion over them, just like God had given dominion over animals back in Genesis 1. And Daniel is not consumed, but he comes out. And so the next day, the king comes and calls Daniel, and Daniel ascends out of the pit, and he takes his place beside the king, beside King Darius. And if you're a Jew reading this story 100 or 200 or 500 years later, you're going to say, wow, Daniel represents all of us. We're surrounded by beasts. We're surrounded by Rome. And Rome is trying to oppress us and seduce us, but we've got to stay faithful to God like Daniel stayed faithful to God. And one day we're going to get elevated out of this pit we're in and we're going to take our place beside the king of kings. And then that's exactly what we see happen in Daniel. Daniel's chapter 7, the son of man figure, if you're in the first century, if you're a Jew in the first century when Christ is, is teaching and walking the earth, living a perfect sinless life, if you're a first century Jew, you would have no doubt about who the fourth beast was. You would say that that fourth beast was Rome. And whoever that horn is, you would say it's any, any number of Roman emperors, just take your pick. And if you were that first century Jew, you would be looking for the Son of Man. Because originally the Son of Man idea was of this kind of collective figure that just kind of we're all called to be faithful. But as time presses on, we found that none of us are faithful. None of us are righteous. None of us live up to the calling that God has placed on us. And so this question becomes, who will be faithful? Who will be worthy? And Jesus comes along in the first century when everybody's looking for that leader, that Messiah, that Lord, that King, the one who's going to destroy the beast, that Son of Man. And what's Jesus' most frequent title for himself? He calls himself the Son of Man. This is why people are constantly mad at Jesus because he's taking on himself this title that Daniel gives to the one who's going to defeat the beast, 
to the one who's going to be exalted at the right hand of the ancient of days. That's what he calls himself. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Matthew 17, 9, he says, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. In Mark 14, verses 61 and 62, he's before the high priest, Caiaphas, and he says to him, You will see the Son of Man on the coming on the clouds of heaven. Basically, he's saying to Caiaphas, I'm that Daniel 7 son of man that's going to defeat the beast, and you are the beast. Even though you're religious, you're the beast. That's what he's saying. Mark 10, 45. I think we may have that one. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. While this is so radical, it's because the whole description of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was that he exists to be served by the nations, by everyone. And then Jesus comes and says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. He turns what was understood about Messiahship upside down. Acts chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, Jesus says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Be my witnesses everywhere you go. And then what happens? He ascends on a what? Cloud. Did he, did he need a cloud? A cloud took him out of their sight. This is God's way of communicating to the disciples that at the cross and resurrection of Jesus, he has taken his place at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He has defeated the beast. When, when the beast is defeated here, is that something that we're waiting on God to do? Or is it something that's happened already? That's a really important question. Is Jesus waiting to be the king? Or is he the king right now? Well, the New Testament would tell us that we live right now in the last days because Jesus has fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled. The New Testament would tell us that Jesus has taken his seat above all rulers and powers and authorities and principalities. He has defeated the beast. Well, how come evil, wicked, terrible things keep happening? And that beast is, is still fighting. Its destruction is, is guaranteed. It has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that beast will be totally destroyed at the return of Jesus Christ. And right now, we're called to be people who are so intoxicated by this vision of the Ancient of Days and one like a Son of Man that we live as though Christ is Lord right now because He is, even if nobody else does. To be a Christian, stay with me, to be a Christian is to recognize that Jesus is Lord right now. Um, there's people who live as though Jesus is Lord, and there's people that live as though Jesus is not. And a Christian is someone who lives with the understanding and the conviction that Jesus is Lord now. Remember Acts chapter 7, Stephen, because he believes in the lordship of Jesus Christ, he preaches this incredible sermon, and because of it, he gets stoned with rocks to death. And as he dies, he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What's he telling us? That Jesus is the one who has defeated the beast. He is the one who reigns forever, and he is the one who wants to share his kingdom with us. A biblical vision of God gives us a clear vision of what is real. So to, to wrap up, to begin to wrap up, um, what, does it, what does all of this mean about our present? And what does it mean for our future? Anybody still alive? All right. It means that God is king. 
Jesus reigns right now. Again, some people know it and some people don't. There's coming a day, Philippians says, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what a Christian does is we confess that with our lips and with our lives now. All right? Um, the beast is contrasted in Daniel 7 with the, with the lamb or with the king or with the son of man. Um, the beast and beastly empires still exist, even though they've been defeated by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The beast opposes God and works through strength, says, do what I say or else. The beast also works through seduction. And the Babylon that we live in today is very seductive. And Babylon's message to you and to me is you do you. Isn't that seductive? Just, just do what you want to do. That's such a seductive message. You know what happens when I do me? I end up in prison or worse, okay? I do not, that doesn't work well for me. Um, because apart from Christ, my heart is deceitful. But Christ wants to give me and has given me and, and he wants to give each of us a new heart, all right? Our Babylon says, you just do you, you do what you want to do. It's so seductive. And yet a Christian is one who says, Christ has broken the power of Babylon I don't have to do what the beast says anymore. Even if everybody around me does what the beast says, I don't have to do that anymore because Christ has been given all authority. So beastly powers, antichrist forces will continue to oppress, will continue to press. And you don't have to worry and wring your hands and you don't have to buy books from phony preachers telling you the exact date that, that the world's gonna end and that Jesus is gonna return. You don't have to do any of that. You know what you have to do? Just be faithful to the king. Be doing what the king left you to do. And what has he left us to do? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Does that sound a little bit like Daniel 7? All authority has been given to me in heaven. I've died, I've risen, I've ascended to the, I'm ascending to the right hand of the ancient of days. All authority says has been given to me on heaven and earth. So you go and make disciples of all the nations. That's what he's left us to do. He hasn't called us to wring our hands and worry about what date the world's gonna end. He's called us to be faithful and make disciples of all the nations because that's why we exist. That's why we're on, um, that's why we're on this planet. So did your parents ever leave you in charge of the house and then they showed up a couple hours earlier than you thought they were, and as you saw them driving up the driveway, you're frantically trying to like do all the chores you were supposed to do. Man, I don't want that to be me when Christ returns. I want to be found doing what the king left me to do, and I believe that's what you want. So there's two kingdoms, and we get to choose which kingdom we're loyal to. There's a kingdom that's unjust, and there's a kingdom that's fair and just. There's a kingdom that's eternal, and there's a kingdom that's temporary. There's a kingdom where greatness comes through taking. And there's a kingdom where greatness comes through giving away. There's a kingdom that's monstrous. And there's a kingdom that's modeled after the image of God. And so one day there will be a final beast, a final antichrist, a final trial. And he's already been dethroned by the resurrection of Jesus and will be totally destroyed at the return of Jesus. And that biblical vision of God gives us a clear vision of what's real. So how do we live and worship and serve today as the band comes up in light of Daniel 7? 
Again, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, where is my loyalty? What am I going to give my life for? Um, your pre- the, a couple of reminders. Your present and your future is secured in the hands of a sovereign God. That's one thing that Daniel 7 communicates is that God is sovereign. And your present and your future is held in the hands of a sovereign God. Evil has been dethroned and will one day be totally destroyed. And you can rest in that and rejoice in that. The arrogant, beastly kingdom will threaten you and will seduce you. But because Christ is risen, you do not have to be controlled by the beast anymore. Finally, the kingdom that captures your imagination will capture your loyalty. And what Daniel is given here in in, in this chapter is this incredible vision worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about and imagining God on his glorious throne and this glorious son of man who ascends to the right hand of the Father. It's worth thinking about this vivid picture of these ugly, monstrous beasts that get destroyed by a flick of God's wrists. It's worth thinking about Christ uh, being exalted over the beast as he gives himself on the cross and as he rises. That's worth imagining because whatever kingdom captures your imagination is going to capture your loyalty. And what kingdom do you spend the most time imagining? Yours or, or, or his? That's where your loyalty is going to be. So as we, as we stand to sing, Christ has done for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. We're like Daniel, quaking in our boots at this beast that so often we don't even see it for what it is. But he's done for us. When he came perfect, we revealed ourselves as beastly by killing the one good and true and perfect and holy person who's ever lived and yet he rose.